0: Now, If you're joining with us for the first time, um, 1 Corinthians is where you need to be trying to find the first letter that Paul, that we have a record of Paul writing to the church in Corinth. As you're turning there, I said at the outset of this series that although, although the letter of 1 Corinthians may seem, if you've taken the time to read through it, if you haven't already, I'd really encourage you, make it a goal, um, you try and do it in one sitting if you can. Um, Or if you find it difficult to read, grab an app, um, if you have a phone that'll do that, and have it read it to you while you're driving. One sitting, just one letter to hear it all um, laid out. And if you've done that already, or if you do it, you may think that it sounds like just a random bunch of problems that Paul was trying to correct in the church at Corinth but it is actually held together the whole letter is held together by a single and clear theme that theme is how disordered or how our misplaced identities hijack our confidence in Christ There's a bunch of ways that the church in Corinth, a bunch of ways that we can easily misplace our identity and it hijacks our confidence in Christ and it can only be remedied by the gospel. That's the the theme of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And we desperately need that. We need that. All right? God uses His Word like a scalpel. And it cuts us. But it cuts to heal, right? That's what a doctor does. He cuts to heal. And that's what God does with His Word. We need that type of healing wound. We we need that from God. We're a people consumed with identity today. We are absolutely consumed by identity. But, we're so often distracted and confused about what identity actually is. Or even maybe what it should be. We've um, we've cropped and filtered our lives so many times that we find it difficult to know who we even are anymore. Our world doesn't even know how to define simple words like male or female anymore. Now, it's possible that you're reflecting on what I've just said and you're thinking, yep, I agree, right? We're living in a crazy world and that's good. You've identified the mess that we're in and you're willing to admit it. You may even listen to what I've said and thought, yes, and it's not just the world out there, Chris. I'm even confused about what it means for me to be a Christian today. Well, that's good too. You're willing to turn the microscope on your own life. Willing to turn it on and realise that you are prone to finding your identity in all sorts of places that aren't healthy. Not just the world out there. But maybe you're also thinking, Chris, just lighten up a bit, right? I'm trying, okay? I'm trying. I'm trying really hard, but I'm only human. I make mistakes. I'm limited. I'm not perfect. And you're right. We are only human. I think that's even a good thing for us to realize. It's a healthy thing for us to own our limitations. It's a healthy thing for us to recognize our weaknesses. It's a healthy thing to realize that you are finite. That you're a finite being and you have a finite, a limited understanding of the world that you live in even. I really do think that's healthy. I think it's good for you to cut yourself some slack sometimes. To sometimes lower the bar from perfection that we are trying to jump over and to say, well, we're only human." Now, I say all of this because we're about to read something in the beginning of chapter 3, which is where we're up to in our series, and Paul is going to use a phrase, more than once actually, that we may easily misinterpret as meaning something different to what I think he actually means by it. So we need to ask God's help in hearing the Spirit. Let's pray, and then we'll read. Lord, as we open up your word, as we read it now, Lord, again, we ask week after week after week, Lord, please speak to us through it. We don't want this just to be ink on paper or pixels on a screen. We want this, we want to hear the living, life-giving word of God this morning. Spirit, still our hearts, soften our hearts. Open our ears and our minds to hear what you have to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You got 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Good. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. We're going to read straight through from verses 1 to verse 9. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh... "...as babies in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready, because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans?" For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believe, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, But God gave the growth, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, but we are God's co-workers, You are God's field, God's building. That's God's word. There's a problem. I reckon you probably picked up on the phrase that I warned you about, didn't you? Mere humans. Paul says it twice. Aren't you acting like mere humans? Not sure about you. Did it make you sort of prickle a little bit? Don't feel too bad if it did. A lot of people get riled up about that phrase. Right? How dare you? How dare you, Paul? Mere humans, what do you want from us, right? I can imagine the, the church in Corinth just going, what does he want from us? Cut us some slack. We are doing the best we can. All right, let's be gracious towards Paul for a moment and see if we can decipher what he's driving at when he uses that phrase, mere humans. Because look around the room, you are in the company of mere humans. To do that, I want to try and figure out his heart behind that phrase. And to do that, we're going to try and start at the very first place that he uses it, which is at the end of verse 3. I want you to find it in your Bible. And then we're going to try and work our way back from there and see if we can try and piece together the phrases that he uses that sort of lead up to mere human. He does use it again in verse 4. You probably saw it, and we'll get to that soon enough. But really, in verse 4, he's just kind of repeating what he said in verse 3, and he gives it emphasis by giving us a specific example, but we, we won't rush ahead of ourselves. We'll get there in a minute. Grab a pencil or a highlighter or, or the highlight tool or something on your device. I want you to try and highlight some words with me, and then we'll try and connect the dots. I'm not going to try and do it on the screen. And we'll um, build a picture of what Paul means. So, verse 3 is the verse, first place that he uses that term. Um, Since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? All right, so you could underline the word or or the phrase mere humans. And we're going to see if we can now trace ourselves backwards towards verse one and pick up some ideas which I think equate or, or are linked to that idea of being a mere human. The first clue that we've got is in actually that sentence. That's in verse 3. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly... So you could highlight that that concept of worldly... behaving like mere humans. See, See, behaving like mere humans is an explanation of what he just said. So there's envy and there's strife amongst the church in Corinth. And he says are you not worldly because of that envy and strife? And when you're worldly, he describes that as being mere humans. So now we understand that when he uses the word mere human, he also means, well, there's some type of worldly behavior. And we still might go, well, that's not that helpful, Paul. Look where we live. We live in the world, right? Aren't we meant to be worldly? Well, we'll see if we can keep going backwards and piece it together. He uses that term worldly at the beginning of verse 3, it's at the end of the sentence that goes before it. Um, we can pick up that sentence by, by halfway through verse 2 and says, in fact, you are still not ready because you are still worldly. All right, there's that term again. So now he's used that term twice. You're still worldly In fact, I know that you're worldly because there's envy and strife. You're mere humans. So we've really got to emphasise the fact that in Paul's mind, mere humans, well, they're acting in a way which is very worldly. All right, let's go back a bit more. He talked a bit about, you know, the whole milk and not solid food stuff at the beginning of verse to. The next term that I really want you to highlight is the term babies in Christ. You can find that at the end of verse 1. Let's pick up that sentence. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. You could highlight babies in Christ. So when Paul talks about being worldly and then goes on to talk about being mere humans, it came from the seed in his mind, which was something to do with being a baby in Christ. In fact, in that same sentence, he contrasts being a baby in Christ with spiritual people. See what he said? I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh, right? Not spiritual people, but people of the flesh who are what? Babies in Christ. So here's, I think, what we can piece together from that. By the time Paul gets to the end of that sentence, which is in our verse 3, and he starts using the term mere humans, where Paul has come from in that, is by saying, listen, I really want to address you guys as spiritually minded people, spiritually attuned people, but instead, you're thinking like the world thinks. You're people of the flesh. Now, we know that they are Christians because he says that they're babies, not babies in the world, but babies where? In In Christ. He's talking to them. He knows that they're his brothers and sisters in Christ. But for some reason, although they have placed on the identity of Christ, they are new people in Christ. Their mindset is what? It's thinking just like it used to think in the world. It's thinking just like lots of other people think in the world. He says they're people of the flesh. They're babies in Christ. He says in verse 3 that you're still worldly He says later in verse verse three that you are you are worldly because of the way that you are acting with envy and strife, and therefore you are behaving like mere humans. You see, the problem isn't that we're human. That's not the problem. We're all human. In fact, that's why I said at the beginning, it's not a bad thing to say, hey, listen, we're only human, right? We do have limitations. We we can't see the end of all things like God. We aren't perfect. We're frail. We have wounds. We are human, but the problem isn't that we're human. It's that we fail to grasp that in Christ, we're so much more than that. We've been made for something more than mere humanity. The problem with being merely human is that we've bought into the lie that says this world is the way it is. We need to just accept it, settle for it, trudge through it. Mere humans won't see beyond the here and the now. They won't see beyond the pattern of this world or the substance of this age that we live in. They can, mind you, but they won't. I think we've got it all wrong actually. For so long I've grown up in church life ever since I can remember probably being dragged to church, carried to church, I don't know. I've been coming to church for nearly 46 years. And all my life I can remember in the church, people talking about new Christians as being young Christians. It's an easy thing, right? Because we think about the metaphor of having a baby, they're new and they're young. And so we equate those two things Someone becomes a Christian and we all celebrate. We should. It's one of the most miraculous things on the planet, right? Someone dead came to life again. Right? It doesn't matter if their story came from the gutter or not. They might have been a good living 70-year-old woman who had grown roses in her garden and fed the poor. If they didn't know Christ, they were dead in their sins. And when they met Christ, He gave them life and raised them up again and they have a hope and a future. That is a story worth celebrating. When someone says, I've got a friend, they became a Christian, this place should erupt. It does in heaven. Yeah. I'm getting sidetracked. None of that was in my notes. <laughs> Go, brother. <laughs> but we've got it wrong. We say things like, oh, this is so exciting. He is such a young Christian. She is such a young Christian. Look at their passion, right? We say this about new Christians, and us older Christians go, that'll wear off. (laughs) Why? Why should it wear off? Look at their zeal. Look at their energy. Look at their boldness for Jesus, right? And then we say, oh, but they're only young in their faith. Soon, and we give it words, soon they'll learn discernment. You know what that means? Stopping being so bold. (laughs) Soon they'll learn wisdom. Soon they'll learn steadiness. But I think we've got it all wrong. A baby in Christ isn't a new Christian at all. The way that Paul uses that term, a baby in Christ is someone who still thinks like they did when they were in the world. That can happen whether you've been a Christian for two weeks or two decades. You don't have to be a brand new Christian to be a young Christian. You could have been a Christian for 30 years. You could have been a Christian for 45 years, for 70 years. And if you still think the way that the world thinks, Paul would say, you are a young Christian. You are a baby in Christ. We are mere humans when we think like the world thinks when we are people who are marked more by the flesh than by the spirit and when that happens paul says we're little better better than a helpless infant in christ how would we know that we are mere humans how would we know how would we know that we are people of the flesh or that we are worldly or that we are babies in Christ? I want you to have a look. I think Paul gives us one example at least. Verse 3. He says, For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere Christians, if you want to try and diagnose your Christian walk, am I a baby in Christ in the way that Paul says or uses the term baby? Am I thinking worldly? Am I in the flesh? Paul says one way to diagnose that is look at interpersonal relationships within the church. Is there envy and is there strife? They're the terms that are used in the Christian Standard Bible. What's envy? When you look at somebody else and sort of start to go, uh, they're different, they get either more attention or they seem to be more important and why isn't anyone looking at me like... They're some of the markers of envy. Or strife. That's just a sort of catch-all phrase, isn't it? where where our relationships are marked by conflict, by tension, by walking on eggshells around certain people. What will they say if I say this? That's going to cause a problem. Doesn't happen here, does it? Does. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere Humans, Jesus has something more for us than mere humanity, all right? He gave a specific example of how that looked in Corinth. You see it in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another says, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like what? Mere humans. Are you not acting worldly as people of the flesh as babies in christ all those things that paul's just been talking about it's a specific example that was prevalent in corinth and if you've been here since the beginning of our series you know that just after the letter started way back in chapter one started off with a very surprising encouragement this church was sort of pretty dysfunctional paul writes out his letter and he starts by just going man i love you guys I love that Jesus has saved you. He's probably looking at him just going, because I wouldn't have. (laughs) But he didn't say that. But he loves the fact that no one is beyond God's grace. And I want you to hear that this morning as well. So he encourages them and then he turns his attention to the way that their identities are getting misplaced and wrapped up in all the wrong places. And do you remember what he started with? He said, I hear that there's some factions amongst you in the church. Some of you are chasing after Paul and some after Apollos and some after Peter and others of you are saying, well, I belong to Jesus. But the point was, he said that there's all these groups within the church and they're competing with each other and they're trying to find their identity in somebody else apart from Jesus. In three chapters, he's not actually left that topic, by the way. He is still unpacking that and unraveling that. Last week, Matt, thank you so much. I wasn't here. I was speaking away and I tuned in during the week to listen to Matt as he shared with you guys from the end of chapter 2 and and asked us to think about how do we find our wisdom in the way that we think about ourselves and the gospel by who the Spirit directs us to, in, in how we view the Spirit in our lives. How we submit to the Spirit, I was really blessed by. It. I hope you were too. Paul's still been talking about where we look to, right? And now he's turned full circle and he's right back to saying, when you are talking about, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos or I find my identity in anywhere else apart from Jesus, well, we're thinking like the world. Paul has called out an unhealthy competitiveness that has crept into the church, a rivalry that was between different factions within the church community. They were identifying themselves with sort of certain high-profile leaders and preachers and church planters. And the church had bought into a way of thinking that said that their identity was wrapped up in the identity of some type of celebrity Christian. Back in chapter 1, Paul rebuked them for it and pointed them back to the gospel, back to Jesus, and he said, that's where your identity rests. It is a worldly, worldly way of thinking. And it's a juvenile way of of thinking, a mindset dominated by the flesh, and it's a thinking which Paul says is merely human. We have lost sight of what Jesus has created us to be. You were born again for something more than mere humanity. You know that. In another letter that Paul wrote to his friends in the church in Galatia, you might know this verse, Galatians 2 and 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the body, I live by faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You've been made for more than mere humanity. Or in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this age. But be transformed, right? Right? changed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You've been made for more than mere humanity. So why do we settle for it? Don't settle for mere humanity. Yes, We recognize our limitations as people, as humans. Yes, realize that you're not God. Thank God for that. I'm not God. And you'll say, Amen. Thank God for that. Okay, it's healthy to recognize our limitations. It's healthy to realize that you're not God and you can't control everything around you. You can't. Stop trying. It's okay to say, look, I'm only human, but don't settle for merely human. All right? Don't settle for a Christian life that refuses to look beyond the physical, that refuses To see yourself how God sees you. Don't settle for what the world says is normal. Or acceptable. God has something more for you than that. So much more and so much better. There is a solution to all of this. What is it? Does Paul just call these mere humans a bunch of babies and then just abandon them? He doesn't, right? He doesn't. What does he do? He nurtures them. He nurtures them. I want you to have a look at 1 Corinthians again, 3, verse 2. I want you to see what Paul did with these babies. He says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. He nurtures them. That makes complete sense to anyone who's a parent in this room. Every new parent holds their beautiful baby in their arms for the very first time and loves them Deeply for who they are in that very moment. And yet, even while completely loving and accepting them in their helpless infancy, we also begin to dream dreams for their life, don't we? We we wonder about the years ahead and what they will grow up into being like. To imagine their successes, maybe. Their achievements through their teen years and beyond. Mothers dream about what their daughters may look like as they walk down the aisle on their wedding day. Fathers think about... Well, let's be honest, fathers are probably wondering what's for dinner that night. And was the service due on the car this month or next, but... But to be fair, fathers have their own dreams and unrealized joys maybe as they wait for their kids to grow up. You love them right where they are, but you also dream about what they will become. Let me tell you what no parent does. No parent takes their baby home from hospital and says, well, it's about time you grow up, boy. Here, sit up at the table like a grown-up. No, don't fall on the floor like that. (laughs) Sit back up again. Grown-ups don't do that. Right. Grown-ups eat chops and veggies. So that's what you're going to have tonight, boy. Just like the rest of the family. That's dumb, right? Of course it is. We don't do that. Babies have to eat what is good and appropriate for babies. Babies. We know that they won't always need or even desire the food that they require right now. We know that one day it is good and appropriate to stop breastfeeding. At a certain point, people start going, that's weird, you shouldn't be doing that anymore. We know that it is not healthy and good for a child to only eat custard for their entire life or pureed vegetables. We know that soon enough, there will be banana mush flying around, found on the floor. We wonder, is that in our car? Food at some point in time? I'm not sure. All those things happen as our kids grow up. One day, that little baby will be learning how not to burn the sausages on the barbecue, how to make their dad the perfect poached egg. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Or they will be doing the KFC run. Or they will be complimenting mum on the best white sauce over corned beef that they have ever had. Alright, that's what Paul's driving at now. Paul saw that the church needed to grow up, so he gave them what they needed to do that. We start where you are and then move from there. Right, we can throw judgment at each other all day long, but I can guarantee you that no one gets smart-alecked into the kingdom. No one. No one is shamed into maturity. If you want someone to grow up, nurture them. Feed them what they require now, but keep in mind that it won't be always what they need. One day they will move on to something more solid. Start where they're at, and then help them take the next step. So Paul nurtured them. I need to finish. This is the second thing that Paul did. We're not going to go through all the other verses, but 1 Corinthians 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each one has the role the Lord has given him. And then he continues on down to verse 9. The first thing that Paul did was nurture them. The second thing that he did was he applied the gospel to their heart and not just their behaviour. I'm not a gardener, but I know that you usually put fertiliser into the soil around the roots. You don't just rub manure onto the leaves of the branches where you want or hope more fruit to grow, right? But so often, that's how we treat people who we hope to see changed behaviour in. It's certainly how we most often treat ourselves. We really desire some form of changed behaviour, so we say it's something like this. It's simple. You just stop doing it. And then start doing this. And you can fill in your own this here. So we say, it's simple. Just stop being mean and start being kind. Just stop eating junk food and start eating healthy. Just stop looking at inappropriate things and read your Bible. Or just stop envying each other and competing with each other and find your identity in Christ. It's easy. Just stop it. And our churches are filled with exhausted Christians who are being told, it's easy, just stop it. Sunday after Sunday, many of you are walking out the door resolving to try harder this week. To do better this week. To be victorious this week. And Sunday after Sunday, you drag your feet back through the door, weighed down with the shame, while wondering how everybody else seems to be doing so well. Week after week, this cycle continues until one day you can't take it anymore, and so you walk out the door and you don't come back. And shame on us if we have ever preached a try-harder gospel. And shame on us if we've ever, even if it wasn't just from this pulpit, that the culture of this church has communicated it's easy, just do it. We should repent and cry out, Lord, forgive us. You see, verses 5 through 9 of 1 Corinthians 3 show that Paul applies the gospel to the heart. He wants the gospel to recalibrate their thinking, to change their hearts and to adjust their vision to see the world, how God has ordered it, not just how the flesh does Paul applies the principles of the kingdom to the Corinthians' disordered identity by showing them how God does things. Who Apollos and Paul really are in the scheme of eternity and where true life actually springs from. Remember? Hey, Paul planted, yeah. Apollos watered, yeah. But who gave the growth? He says God gave the growth. God did. So don't fall down and worship Paul and fall down and worship Apollos. There's hope for us mere humans in the room today. So whether you need milk this morning or meat, God will meet you where you are. He will nurture you. He has something more than mere humanity in mind for you. God is the great restorer and the great deliverer. right? God is the master farmer. Did you see that in that text in verse 9? He says, you are God's field. You are God's building. God is the master Farmer, the one who knows when to plant and the one who knows when to water and when to prune and when to harvest. But he's also the master builder. He knows what foundations need to be reset in our lives. He knows what needs to be torn down and built back up again. He knows what supports are required. What rooms will be best in your life and how you will best stand against the storms of this life? 1 Corinthians 3 and 9, you are God's field. You are God's building. So God has something in mind for you. There is hope for us mere humans. He's not finished with you yet. Root yourself, plant yourself in Jesus and the gospel of His grace. No other identity will match that. Set your foundations in the hope that that lives in Jesus alone, who is your righteousness. Nobody else can match that. You are God's field and God's building. And you're a trophy of his grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for meeting us in your word this morning. As we've been able to respond to you in worship. As we've remembered you in communion. As we've reflected on what you're doing in this community, Lord. All of these things you've been showing us and teaching us. But Lord, help us to view the world the way that you view it. We don't want to be mere humans. We don't want to be fleshly, worldly, babies in our thinking. We want to grow up in who you have made us to be. So Lord, work amongst us as your field or as your building, doing in us what you require. Lord, we want to find our identity in you and you alone. And so we call out and pray in your name. Amen.